All right, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, first gospel of, um, book in the New Testament, first gospel. I like that song that we sang because it focuses our attention on the purpose of his birth. The whole reason that he came uh, was to die upon the cross. John 3.16 records for that, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that whoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life because he perished for us in our place. So what a, a song to focus our attention uh, um, this Christmas season on the true meaning of his birth. Why did he come? In uh, Matthew chapter 1, I'd like to read the first uh, 17 verses. And so if you'll follow along in, uh, in your gospel reading. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham beget Isaac, and Isaac beget Jacob. And Jacob beget Judas and his brethren. And Judas beget Perez and Zaar of Tamar. And Perez beget Esron, and Esron beget Aram. And Aram beget Aminadab, and Aminadab beget Naasam. Naasam beget Solomon, and Solomon beget Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz beget Obed of Ruth, and Obed beget Jesse, and Jesse beget David the king, and David the king beget Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon beget Rehoboam, Rehoboam beget Abiah, and Abiah beget Asa, and Asa beget Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat beget Joram, and Joram beget Ozias and Ozias beget uh, Joatham, and Joatham beget Achaz, and Achaz beget Ezekias, and Ezekias beget Manassas, and Manassas beget Amon, Amon beget Josias, and Josias beget Jehoiakim, or uh, as and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon, and after they were brought to Babylon. Jehoiakimaz beget Selathiah, Selathiah beget Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel beget Abahud, and Abahud beget Eliakim, and Eliakim beget Azar. And Azar beget Zadok, and Zadok beget Achim, and Achim beget Elahud, and Elahud beget Eleazar, and Eleazar beget Mathen, and Mathen beget Jacob. Jacob beget Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the reading of your word. And that we can be blessed by it. Uh, be with us in our study this morning. Would it be encouraging? And would we see what the Holy Spirit has for us to see from uh, this list today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, years back, uh, I did a study on our family tree in my family. It can be dangerous when you look into the past of your family tree. Um, my great-uncle, 
um, did a DNA test and found out that our family name Cochran actually has English descent and not Scottish or Irish, which was different than what I was thinking of. When we searched through some death certificates, it was interesting for us to realize how some of our ancestors died. Um, and uh, one ancestor we had a great grandmother who ended up dying in a, in a tuberculosis sanatorium in the 1920s and uh, didn't know about that. We found out some nicknames. When you go through census records and you work through things, you realize what sometimes they're, they're called, how much their homes were and the property and their value of their property. Uh, what they did for a living. Interesting, we found one of our great-grandfather and, grand, uh, and son uh, were trained engineers just after the Civil War in the 1870s. And uh, that was interesting. Grand routes from uh, Atlanta to Birmingham when they were laying some of those early tracks. Found out one of my great-grandfather's World War I draft cards in October of 1918. So just around the time that... Um, the time of where the war was ended. We found out that there, were, there was one great-grandfather whose, whose father served in the Confederate Army and his father-in-law served in the Union Army from the same county in Tennessee. Talk about divided Christmases right, in that home. Uh, we found out things that we were proud of, like one great-grandfather serving in the Revolutionary War and taking part in helping trade and protect the Indians during the Trail of Tears in the 1830s in Georgia. We also found out some things that we were not so proud of, like a great-grandfather who deserted the military and ran away with another family. I learned some things that even our living family did not know about. It could be dangerous when you open up your family tree and start to search. You see, most genealogies, most family trees for us today are really just hobbies. But we don't really care about them until we're talking to that great aunt or it's a child's project for some class that they've got to do or questions or you're getting ready to go to family reunion and you're trying to figure out who so-and-so belongs to and you start pulling out your family pictures in your family tree. But the genealogy of the Jewish people was much more in the first century. It was a very important part of their heritage. Remember, every 50th year of Jubilee, land was to be returned to the original owners, the original family. You had to know who you were and where your land was. Knowing your family tree meant a lot in that time. It was claim on the land. The Jewish people today are very interested in their past in their family, in their lineage, in their heritage. Why? Because they, every time they dig up the past and find evidence of their tribes and their family, they prove to the world that the land is theirs. It's, it's important even to the modern Jewish people. It proved legal rights in families. Knowing who your family was and where you came from gave you legal rights to birthrights, to materials, to possessions, yes, to land, uh, but even to leaders. It gave, uh, it gave royal rights to certain families. Those in the tribe of Judah meant they were in the line of the king. And that they had to keep their family tree detailed so that if they were selected to be king, they had to prove their lineage. To prove their heritage. This was also true of the tribe of Levi. 
Levi had to keep a detailed family tree throughout his family because his sons and the sons of Aaron were high priests and they could potentially be in line of high priests, but also the responsibilities. Remember in Luke chapter 1, Zacharias, who was of the tribe of Levi, had to have a detailed family tree to be able to perform his duties. And so that the lot could fall on him. He had to have a clear family lineage and heritage so that he could even serve on an appointed season or in an appointed time. So what we find here in Matthew chapter 1 through verse 17 is we find Jesus' family tree. We find his genealogy. And Matthew is using this genealogy to set the stage for Jesus' legitimate right to the throne of David. This is why he records in verse 1 of this book, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that was important. That's his proof. And then he's going to write for the rest of the book telling us about Jesus, but specifically relying on who is this Jesus of Nazareth. Interesting, the question comes up in the life of Jesus in Matthew again. Turn over to Matthew chapter 22. Just for illustration here for you to see this, in Matthew chapter 22, the identity of Jesus, the Nazarene, and the Messiah was very important in the conversation of Jesus' life with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They all knew very well that the Messiah had to prove his lineage. And in Matthew chapter 22, in verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Notice what he asked. Saying, what think you of Christ? What do you think of the Messiah? That's the word Christ. That's what it means here. In the Greek, it means anointed one. In the Hebrew, it's Mashiach or Messiah. It means the one who is anointed, who will rule and reign on the throne of David, who is the promise. And, and Jesus comes right out, opens the question, what do you think of the Messiah? Notice his next question, what does he ask? Whose son is he? Whose son is he? Jesus just pulled out a, a genealogy question. Who does he belong to? Whose son is he? What right does he have? And notice the Pharisees know exactly how to answer the question. How do they answer the question? In the next verse, or in that verse, they said unto him, he is the son of who? David. There it is for you. You see, Jesus knew, as well as the Pharisees knew, that for the Messiah to be legitimate, he had to be the son of David. One writer said this, to the Jewish mind of the day, the first and foremost fundamental question demanded an answer, and it was this. Is this Jesus of Nazareth a direct descendant of David? If he is not, he cannot be the Messiah. So Matthew begins his gospel by answering without a doubt that question. Jesus was the son of David. This is why both Matthew and Luke record for us a detailed list of Jesus' family tree. You find Jesus' family tree in the Gospel of Luke as well. Now we tend to skip over family trees when we come to reading, like Matthew and Luke. One person said this, we skim over them and insert mental bleeps. I like mental bleeps, I have a lot of those. For all the names we cannot pronounce. All right? 
Most of these names belong to obscure people who appear to have nothing to do with Christmas story. So let's move on and get to the wise men. Chapter 2. Or let's get to the nativity. Or let's get to the shepherds. Or let's get to the manger. Let's get to the other stuff. I can't even pronounce some of these words. So let's move on. I know that you don't know many of these people. And many of them we may know uh, uh, very little about. Only a few of them we know a lot about. But this is a most fascinating study. To see what Matthew and Luke do with Jesus' family tree. I want us to just look a little... just. Briefly this evening and the time that we have a little bit at some concepts within Matthew's record. What's most fascinating about the genealogy in Matthew that would have puzzled, that puzzles you if you were reading it, other than the hard names, and puzzled the first early church and first Jewish readers was the fact that Matthew included five women. This would have stood out like a beacon in that first century culture. And to some extent, it still does today. In a list of 40 male names, five of them, five names are women. Or at least four of them, one referenced. Who were these women? And why are they in Jesus' family tree? Just thinking about the first three names, if you'll look at verse 1 here, I want you to draw attention to this and just some introductory comments. Notice that in this generation, in verse 1, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Three names that are listed for us here. They're key. Two of these names, David and Abraham, are, are the foundation of the Jewish heritage. You see, in, in the first century to the Jewish people, a family tree would start with the present and then work its way back to the farthest father that you could, you could connect to. Because the indication is the, the importance is on the last name, not the first name, because the first name came from the next name, came from the next name, came from the next name, the next name, all the way to the last name. He's the most important because everybody found their way to him. He's the one that's most important. However, interesting in Matthew's list, Jesus' name is first and last. Do you notice that? And when he finally starts the genealogy, he doesn't start with Jesus and work to Joseph and then back to Matthias and then back in such a fashion. He starts first with Abraham and works his way into the present so he finally, in verse 16, finds his way to Jesus, which shows you Matthew is telling us of all of these names, who is most important? Jesus. So he's included at the first name and he's included at the last name. He changes the order from the traditional Jewish order of the, the present to the past, but to the past to the present to show Jesus is the most important one in this list. It's interesting how he arranges this. These two individuals, Abraham and David, are important. The Abrahamic covenant came through the right of the land. To be the seed of Abraham meant to be of the blessed seed of the one who would bless the whole world. Going back to Genesis chapter 12, son of Abraham, this was clearly messianic. This was showing us that this would be the one who is connected to the promised seed of the Abrahamic covenant who would bless the whole world, connected with the land. But also the son of David. This is also a messianic title. 
Matthew will show us in this line that Jesus was the rightful heir to the promises of both Abraham and to the Davidic covenant as well. These were promises that were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The genealogy of Jesus in Matthew is divided into three sections as is stated in verse 17. Look down at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. There's section 1. And from David until the carrying away of Babylon, there's section 2, 14 names. And from the carrying away from Babylon unto Christ, there are 14 generations. So three lists of 14. Now that's interesting. In the middle of this list of 14, David is the central person in the genealogy. And it's no accident that his numerical value in the Hebrew consonants D, V, D... The Jewish people obviously had numbers connected to consonants as well. Is 4 plus 6 plus 4, which is 14. David is also the 14th name in the lists, and there are three lists of 14. Now, Matthew has to do some loops to get to that equation. Not the name of David, but to the number 14 in three groups of 14. He has to actually take names out of the genealogy. There are names omitted in Matthew's genealogy so that Matthew could get this precise numerical number. Why does he do that? You'll have to come back for another lesson on that. What is different about this genealogy than any other Jewish genealogy in the ancient literature is what I want to look at this morning. Five Jewish, or five uh, names of women. These women are both unnecessary and unnatural in a Jewish genealogy. But not to Matthew. This is the reason why the Holy Spirit chooses to let us see these women and their names in this list. I could actually probably take a whole sermon on each name. In fact, I do have a set of notes where there's a whole sermon series on all five of these women. I'm going to attempt to try and at least take this Sunday and possibly next Sunday, depending on how the Lord gives us the time here, to look at these five names. Will you turn and look down in verse 3? And Judas beget Perez and Zaar, and of Tamar. And Perez beget Esron, and Esron beget Aram. There's the list of the first female name in this list. And that finds us, that takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis. Tamar is a woman that we find in Genesis 38. In fact, her story and what happens to her is a whole chapter in the book of Genesis between a narrative of the life of Joseph being taken from his home to eventually finding his way into Egypt and in prison. And then all of a sudden, chapter 38 of Genesis jumps out of telling the story about Joseph and says, I want to stop here and tell you the story of Tamar. Moses does something very interesting in the narrative. Her story is out of this world. She enters the bloodline of the Messiah because she is chosen to be the wife of Judah's son, Ur. If you actually want to turn back to Genesis 38, just to make reference, because of the sake of time, I can't read all of the story, but I'm just going to have to tell it for you. But I do think it would be good for your eyes to, to lay hold on Genesis 38 to see this. 
er, or E-R, not U-R, er, however you want to pronounce it in Alabama, er. In, in 38, in verse 7, this husband was a very wicked man. In fact, he's so wicked that the Bible says in the sight of the Lord that the Lord slew him. That's got to be a pretty wicked guy to die early in life. God killed him. So again, he, uh, again she is married to the next brother. And this is a, a, um, a, a practice and a custom in that time that if the husband died without an heir, the brother, the next in line, would marry the daughter and have a son by her. But that first child from the second brother would actually carry on the deceased husband's name. That would be how it would be. That's how those lineages would, would follow. However, interesting in verse 10 of this story, the brother refuses to have um, a son with her. And because of that and his wickedness, God slew, uh, slew him as well. He put him to death. So two wicked brothers who have chosen not or, or who, have, who have lived in their wickedness. So in the story, Judah tells her to go home and wait until his next son becomes old enough to marry. Later in the story, uh, Judah basically forgets about her and his promise to her. Her life is shattered by wicked husbands and an eventually a wicked father-in-law. Disappointed, her dreams smashed, to be childless and, and, and a widow in that culture was a terrible stigma. The next time we see her in this chapter, she has disguised herself as a prostitute. Goes and stands at the street corner in the night. Seduces Judah, the father-in-law, to sleep with her. He does. She becomes pregnant. Not a story you want to share with your children for family devotions. The next time we see her, um, interesting that she's made such a very terrible, not so glamorous decision. Um, she ends up uh, giving birth to twin boys. And may I note, Please, that both of these boys find their name in the genealogy of Jesus, Pharaoh's and Zerah. Jesus is only descended from one of them, but both boys are in the line. One boy doesn't belong, but they're both mentioned. You see, the problem is Judah had it coming to him because he dealt with Tamar in such an unjust way. Judah actually says in verse 26 of 38, look down in verse 26, and Judah acknowledged when all of this is found out, she gives him a ring, or he gives her a ring, he gives her a, 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 a robe, he gives a staff, so also she can prove in her disguise of, of who is the actual legitimate father. When all of this comes out and she proves that Judah is actually the father, notice what Judah says in verse 26. She hath been more righteous than I. That means she is, she is more in the right than I am. He is admitting his fault. He is admitting that he was a callous, cruel, and wicked father-in-law. He had fallen into that. Tamar is a complicated person with a messy life. Whatever the case is, the whole ordeal between Tamar and Judah is a sad story and couldn't have been made up in a reality TV show. 
This reminds me of the topic of hope. This woman had been left out, mistreated, and had lost hope in all the world by wicked men. In her desperation, she did something terrible and unspeakable. And yet, can I remind you that Jesus has come into this world to deliver us from our broken hopes. We have nothing in this life to trust in except Jesus. All the other men in your life are going to let you down. All the other people in your life are going to let you down. All the hopes and dreams that you have for this life are going to tell you they're going to be broken. But the hope we have in Jesus Christ can never be broken. We can hope in Jesus. And at this Christmas season, we can be reminded that Jesus is the hope. One author wrote this about Tamar's story. Despite the dubious method used, the incident demonstrates God's perfect management of the messianic line. You see, man has messed up everything. But God can still work His plans through even the sinfulness of man and the sinfulness of women. Did you know that Tamar's name comes up in the book of Ruth, in the lineage of David, when it's recording David's family tree? Ruth chapter 4 and verse 12 says, And let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore unto Judah of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman, in a blessing from Ruth, Naomi, Ruth, to her children, Tamar is mentioned. You know, I know some people who have a hard time at Christmas time because of some sad memory, sad event. I was talking to someone earlier whose husband passed away at Christmas time, and every time of year at Christmas, it becomes a very difficult time can I remind you that Christmas season, even though for some of you it may be hard and difficult, and your hopes and dreams have been changed and dashed because it didn't turn out the way you like and the sad memories that come with that. But can I remind you the true meaning of Christmas is that Jesus brings to us hope for the future. This is not all there is. One day we will see our loved ones again. Because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is our hope in a very broken world that has no hope. And I tell you about the next person that comes in the list of Jesus' family tree. Look back in Matthew chapter 1. Not only do we have Tamar, but also in verse 5 we have, And Solomon begat Boaz of Rahab. Rahab shows up in the book of Joshua. You see, she didn't have to disguise herself as a prostitute. The whole city knew her as Rahab the harlot. You see, her past was open. She was a Gentile, a Canaanite woman from the wicked city of Jericho that was filled with idolatry and wickedness. Joshua chapter 2 in verse 4 calls her, or, or the king recognizes that the spies have been taken to her house, and they recognize and they say, the spies were seen at the harlot's house, Rahab. She lived in a doomed city under the siege of war with God and God's people. She was under the wrath of God. 
Nothing in her life was good until two Jewish spies come creeping up to her door. Of all the doors to hide, the harlot's house. Verse 4 of chapter 2 of Joshua says that she takes them in. She hides them. Verse 9 of Joshua 2 says that she recognizes to them, I know the Lord and what He has done for His people Israel. Verse 10 of that chapter says, I have heard how the Lord brought you. Verse 11, she recognizes He, Jehovah, is the God of heaven and earth. In other words, here in her hiding of these spies in her roof, she's make, made a deliberate decision to join their cause. She's realized that Jehovah is the God of the universe and she finds peace with that God and peace with His people. She is told to hang a scarlet cord out her window so that she would be protected by God. She doesn't know what the future, she doesn't know about the walls coming down. Even the Jewish people don't know about the walking around. They just say, put a cord out your window, and when we come and devastate this city, we'll remember your home and everyone that's in it. You see, her faith. Rahab and her family, because of her faith, are the only ones that survive the tumbling walls of Jericho. Interesting, after the event of Jericho and the walls coming tumbling down, she marries a man, a Jewish man named Salmon, and has a son from him named Boaz. And she becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David. Now, the Bible doesn't record her love story, but I'm sure it, it, it probably was a good one. I mean, it probably would have made a good Hallmark Christmas story. All right? You know, bad past and all this other stuff. And then, you know, uh, and then Solomon, whatever he looked like, you know, and he shows up and he takes her in and she tells her story. And then they have this baby. And then eventually, and, and this beautiful, happily ever after type of um, uh, story. The Bible does record her faith, though, in two New Testament books. James chapter 2 and verse 25 the Bible says, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot. Notice James makes sure he throws in her past. Was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? In other words, in the context of James, James is showing that the fact that that true faith demonstrates itself through obedience and through works. Her justification was by her faith, but publicly it was shown. Her decision to align herself with Jehovah and the people of God and the Israelites and the promises that would come for the destruction of Jericho was shown by the fact that she hid them and obeyed their word by putting out the scarlet cord. Hebrews 11 and verse 31 says, By faith, Rahab the harlot. Both times in the New Testament, her, word is, her, her name is mentioned. It's connected with her per, previous profession. In fact, look at Hebrews 11, please, because this is the point I want to draw your attention to this morning. In Hebrews 11, in verse 31 says, by faith, 
the harlot Rahab perished not with them. Verse 31 of Hebrews 11. That believed not. No, the emphasis upon her faith and that she believed. And because she believed, she did not perish and neither her family. When she had received the spies with, and what's the word? Peace. Peace. If I'm reminded of Tamar who finds hope in this Christmas season, I'm reminded with Rahab that she found peace. At once an enemy of the Lord, at once an enemy of God's people, at once a pagan, a Canaanite, a harlot who was in the city of Jericho and the wrath of God was over that city. But because of her faith, she went from an enemy to an ally. Not just an ally, but one who was embedded in the very fabric of the identity of the Messiah, the King of David. Out, out the outside, her whole situation was against her. She's a prostitute. She's a Canaanite. She's against God. She was marked for judgment. And yet, not only does she and her whole family find salvation and peace, but she finds a husband, marries into the royal line of the kings of the Jews. And more importantly, she finds her name in the book of Matthew in a name that culminates into Jesus Christ. She reminds me that there is peace to those who by faith trust in the promises of God. A person can escape the wrath of God by finding peace in the Prince of Peace, Jesus. He's come into this world to bring peace. A few years ago, a woman drove by our church saw the sign outside in our church and she came and knocked on the door and she came in and sat in my office and she told her story that was sad, broken, hurt. She was afraid. She was searching. She had no peace. She had been to several churches and gone to several different services, the Lutheran and the Catholic, and she'd even attended a Mormon service in the town and she was looking for peace and she couldn't find it. There in my office, I opened up the Bible and shared with her the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And she bowed her head and accepted Jesus as her personal Savior. And she found peace. Do you know what peace is? You could be here this morning. and Your heart is heavy. And you don't know peace. We need to go on. There's another name in this same verse of chapter 5 of Matthew, or Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Not only does Rahab appear in the genealogy of Jesus and Tamar in the genealogy of Jesus, but the Bible says, And Boaz beget Obed of Ruth, and Obed beget Jesse. So now you have another name, Ruth, the Moabitess. Her personal life was not marked by sexual scandal, but her ancestry was. Her family lineage, her family tree, was marked by incest. In Genesis chapter 19 and verse 37, we know the Moabites come from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter when they get him drunk at night. The Moabites were all wrapped in scandal and wickedness. Not a good family to come from. These people were known for their wicked acts and their idolatry. In fact, the Moabites were known for offering human sacrifices to the god Chemosh. 
Here in this story, she ends up marrying a, a Jew who was forbidden by Jewish laws unless they had converted to the one true God, Jehovah. But while she is in Moab, this family comes from Bethlehem and she marries into the family. Her past was ridden with sorrow until she, she arrives in Bethlehem in the arms of Boaz. The story of Ruth is a remarkable story of joy. There's so much sorrow and bitterness that, that, that surrounds this story in the midst of a story of sorrow and bitterness. Even Naomi crying out, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Bitter. Because of the lot that God has handed me. Her husband dies. Her two children die. She has nothing left, but she has to come back to Bethlehem and beg for food. And along with her comes this daughter-in-law. There are only two books of the Bible named after women. Esther and Ruth. Ruth was a Gentile, a pagan, in a life of sorrow. And when you come to the end of this little book, read the book of Ruth. Probably a good Christmas time that you should read through the book of Ruth. Ruth and Naomi, you see these two widow ladies in their grief who are marked by bitterness, and yet their story ends in great joy and rejoicing. The whole story of Ruth is marked by the Hebrew word chesed, which means loving kindness. It is out of this kindness that Ruth finds joy. Her faith brings her to the place of true joy. She became to Naomi better than seven sons, the Bible says in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 15 at the end of the book. How did this happen? The fact that one of the Old Testament books of the Bible is named after a Gentile woman who in turn becomes the grandmother of King David shouts something to us. It shouts a story of redemption and joy in Jesus Christ. Joy. Redemption. You see, there is no joy in this world apart from Jesus Christ. There is no redemption. There is no kinsman redeemer that can redeem you from your sin apart from Jesus Christ. The story of Ruth shouts to us, there is joy to the world. The Lord has come. Can I mention just quickly the last, uh, the second to the last name that is used here in this book in verse 6 in Matthew chapter 1 in verse 6. And the Bible says, And Jesse beget David the king, and David the king beget Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. The fourth woman listed in this genealogy is not listed by name, but only by mention as the wife of Urias. But we all know who she is. It's Bathsheba. We all know the story. You see, Ruth is the story of romance and love and joy. Ruth is the story of a happily ever after. Ruth's story is filled with kindness and joy. Bathsheba's story is filled with heartbreak. She suffers sexual abuse by the king of Israel, David, in which she conceives their son in adultery. Her husband was murdered by the hands of her abuser, and she is forced to marry him under these harsh circumstances, and in her conception ends in the death of her child. Her story is about lust, rape, and infidelity. One writer stated this, the fact that David wielded absolute power as king, this is a multi-level abuse, plain and simple. 
Another author states this, the scripture is silent about any supposed complacency of Bathsheba's part and lays the full blame squarely on David. Given the times and the culture in which she lived, Bathsheba almost certainly had no power to refuse the advances of an absolute monarch. The entire story of Bathsheba is troubling on all levels. Bathsheba is added to one of David's multiple wives. She lives a life of constant trouble and disappointment until her death. The one good spot in her life is that she bears a son named Solomon and she appears in her old age as a voice of reason in the death of her husband to make sure Solomon becomes the next king. Be sure about this. David may be one of the most important names in Jesus' family tree, but the inclusion of Bathsheba and Uriah leaves a terrible mark on David's reputation. One author stated this, this prevents David from being put on any unwarranted pedestal. This woman reminds me that despite all the abuse of power and the lack of love that she experienced in this life, Jesus has come into this world to show love and demonstrate a perfect authority and power. I read this week a sad story of parents who dropped their infant newborn baby off at a fire station because they did not want them. No love. We have a world today that is filled with so much selfishness and abuse of power and anger and a lack of love. And yet Jesus, this story that is fit right here in Matthew, in Jesus' genealogy, relays to us that there is love in this world. And it only comes not in David, not in Solomon, not in Abraham, not in Joseph even. It comes in Jesus Christ. Now, the last name that is listed in this is a female name is found in verse 16. And Jacob beget Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. If there is any doubt in the story about the, 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 the lineage of Joseph and Jesus, J- Joseph was not Jesus' earthly father. In the verse, in verse 16, when Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom in the Greek is feminine. It is not connected to Joseph. Jesus was not of whom from Joseph. He was of Mary. But, recording the legal right to Jesus' throne, because Joseph was Jesus' legal father, No one doubted that. Even the Pharisees said, and the religious leaders of the day said, is this not the carpenter's son? They recognized, even in the shroud, that the fact that Mary became expecting with Jesus before the marriage, and it wasn't Joseph's father, or uh, Joseph wasn't the father, they still recognized the legal right of Joseph being the father, and therefore uh, being able to, to, uh, to receive the promise and the the legal uh, possession and blessing that Joseph would have. There is no mother in all the world who who has had more pressure on her than Mary. She became expecting with Jesus before her wedding day, and the child's father was not the man that she was betrothed to. 
This scandal would have followed her everywhere that she went with whispers and laughs and scorn for many years to come. What she was put through to carry the Son of God in her purity was shame, embarrassment, disappointment, even to the point that her husband or her, her, her espousal thought to put her away. But yet she chose to continue, and so did he. Let me just mention in closing today, what do these women have in common? I've mentioned five names. I've told you the story, a little bit of each one of them. They have in common, first, disgrace. Every one of these women share shame, abuse, scars, sorrow, and pain. They either committed disgrace themselves or suffered disgrace because of some action of another person. Their reputations were tainted and marred. Their names were tainted. At least four of the women had suffered many hard memories of suffering and pain. And I would contend that Mary took with her for the rest of her life very a, a suffering and pain of what would happen in Bethlehem at the hands of Herod. All because of them. One article calls these women, women of ill repute. The misfits of Jesus' tree. Prostitute, prostitutes and mistresses. Hardly the type of women that you would want in your family tree. And most of their reputation had to do with sexual scandal. Women whose stories tell a horrible past. And some of you uh, don't even want to share this. In, a, in a, maybe even a setting where there are children involved. Listen to what John MacArthur says about one of these women. To remove the stigma of sin and remove the need for grace. There is no need to reinvent her past to try to make her seem less of a sinner. The disturbing fact about what she once was is simply a testimony to magnify the glory of divine grace. They remind us that we are all sinners surrounded by sin. The pain and sorrow and shame and disgrace of all of our lives has been affected by the curse in some fashion. We cannot hide it. We cannot run from it. We cannot get away from it. We can't remove it from our lives. We are sinners to our core. And its stain runs deep into every fiber of our being. Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, 6, we all are like sheep gone astray, turned everyone unto our own way. Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one that seeks after God. These women show us that we are all full of disgrace before God. Our past show us that we are dead in our sins. And that we need a savior. Most of us like to hide our blemishes. Many of you sat in front of the mirror and tried to comb it out. Wipe it off. Mark it up. Put something over it. To hide the scars. To hide the bad spots. Most of us don't like to talk about the black sheep of the family. We like to hide them and, and ignore them and, and let's just move on. But in Jesus' family tree, like a beacon, he picks out the very names that are marked by scandal, shame, and sin. To remind us that all of us have a bad past. Do you know that's the exact message of the gospel? The Bible says Jesus came to seek and to save 
that which were lost. You see, these women shared together disgrace. But these women also shared together grace. All of these women in their time of disgrace found grace. Tamar in her disgrace found redemption for her wrongs. She found hope. Rahab in her harlotry found redemption and peace through her faith in God. Ruth in her searching for a kinsman redeemer found redemption and joy in a savior. Bathsheba in her abuse and pain and sorrow was redeemed to be the mother of a king. She may not have been known, known true love, but God showed her true love and grace. Mary found grace in the eyes of the Lord in her hardships and disappointment. God kept his promises to her. You see, these women remind us that the grace of God is never too far from a sinner who's so deep into sin. I mean, some of these women and the, and the hurt that is surrounded by, by their past is connected with some terrible sins. And yet they're highlighted. Can I remind you, none of these women belong here. It is only by God's grace that they show up. And then can I add that, there, none of these men belong here. If we were to walk through the past of some of these men, and we only lightly did with a, with a few of them like, like uh, Judah and David, we would realize none of them belong in Jesus' perfect line either. I'm reminded in John chapter 3 and verse 16, again, it is because of God's love that He has given His Son. It is because of His grace. When we were once aliens, Paul said, that He has made us nigh by His blood into His family. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God loves to reconcile those who are sinners who will turn to Him by faith and say, Lord, despite my past, despite my sin, despite how deep I am in here, I can't work my way to You. I must have unmerited grace and love from You to me because I don't deserve it. And that humble spirit, His grace can reach into the hardest of hearts and the deepest of souls and He can love the worst of sinners and save the sickest of persons. They remind us that we can all find forgiveness. We can all be made new by a Savior if we will just recognize we need one. Um, every year we pull out our Christmas pictures. My dad has several volumes they go all the way back to their first Christmas in 1975. And we go back, and when we go over Christmas, my wife has started some books as well, and we go back and we realize how you know, much things change. And you read through those, you look through those pictures in those books, and you flip through them, and you realize the memories and the things that you've maybe forgotten. You say, oh, I forgot that. And, and what a great thing. You go back, and sometimes there's some heartache that comes because there's some people that aren't in your life anymore. And you remember those things and the hurt and the pain that comes from remembering some of those things. You look through your family pictures and you remember the grace of God. Are you thankful as you look through your past for God's grace? As you think about your presence, are you thankful for God's grace? When you think about your future, are you thankful for God's grace? And I think about these 
five women who are listed here in, in this list of, of, of Jesus' family tree, they remind me of the disgrace of their past and their sorrow because of sin, and they remind me of the ultimate grace of God that is bestowed upon them and that He could lift them out of their hurt and their pain and show them love, hope, peace, and joy. That's the true meaning of Christmas. When I asked you this morning if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're like that woman and you drove by the church and you've come into the service here and your heart is broken, your life is broken, you have no hope, your dreams are falling apart, you know you're a sinner and you're in need of a Savior, then you've come to the right place because Jesus can be to you hope, peace, joy, and love. And He can show you His grace. If you're a believer here today, when we think about the Christmas story and we read through names that to us are obscure and we don't know much about, when we read through these names, every name, whether you know them or not, whether recorded in a chapter or they're just mentioned by a name in the Old Testament, you read through each one of these names and say, how in the world did they ever get into a perfect line for Jesus? You think of the grace of God. Father, I pray as I think about this, I don't deserve to be in your family. Lord, I don't deserve to be called the son. We, we, we heard a few weeks ago when we cry out, our father which art in heaven. I don't deserve to call you father because of my sin. But you've promised that if I will put my faith and trust in you and I will believe the son that I can be a joint heir. I can find forgiveness. Thank you for that day that I trusted Jesus as my personal Savior. And Lord, as we think about this Christmas season, there are so many people out that don't have hope. They don't have peace. Many of their lives probably fit with some of the lives of these ladies. Some of these men marked by sorrow and pain and suffering. Even the memories of Christmas, they, they may not be good memories because of the past that they have. Lord, I pray that they would look beyond that and by faith trust the promises of Jesus Christ, see the true meaning of Christmas, and that Jesus left His heaven, was born in a manger, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, all because of Your grace and Your love to bring us joy and peace and hope this Christmas season. With heads bowed and eyes closed before we dismiss today, I like the ladies to play the song Grace Greater Than All Our Sin as an invitation before we leave and close the service prayer. It is a marvelous grace of our loving Lord. It exceeds our sin. It exceeds our guilt. It was on Calvary's mountain that He poured out His blood, spilt it for you and me. And it is only through the grace Jesus Christ. Grace is not merited. You don't work for it. You don't buy it. It is given freely. You just put your faith and trust. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, this is a great time of the, of the year to accept the message of Christmas, to accept the gift, the free gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ. As believers, but maybe in some way you found and your life is not much different than some of the lives of these that are listed in Jesus' family tree. You have such appreciation for the love and grace of God. 
your heart has been pricked about the seriousness of your sin would it break your heart and draw you to the Lord not away from him but to him even as a believer to be a part of the family of God what a privilege what a joy just in the few moments before we dismiss the service just take a time of prayer God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. Can we stand together, please? And you can just stand. I'd like for us just to sing the chorus, Stephanie. We're just going to sing the chorus here together. Thank you. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word and uh, Lord for reminding us so of sometimes the things that we miss. Uh, bless us this day and uh, keep us safe to come back this evening if you, Terry, you're coming and then uh, this Christmas season where we can share the grace and hope, peace, joy, and love of uh, Jesus Christ this time of year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. Amen.